Well, the great English theologian and pastor, Andrew Fuller, is well known as one of the anchors of the modern missions movement. In fact, one of the greatest displays of his commitment to missions is seen in establishing the Baptist Missionary Society alongside his good friend, William Carey. In 1793, Carey was sent off to India, leaving friends, family, and possessions behind for the sake of the gospel. And years later, Fuller would compare the sending of Carey to India as a man who stood at the edge of a dark, unexplored gold mine. And in the illustration, the man looked down and wondered what it might cost him to descend into it and away from life he knew. No going back. And as Fuller thought of William Carey diving the depths of India... Fuller was wholeheartedly committed to his dear friend, pledging that he would hold the ropes as long as William Carey lived. So Fuller knowledgeably and willfully held the ropes for Carey to scale the depths of the gold mine known as India. Now what exactly did it look like for Andrew Fuller to hold the ropes for his friend? It looked like radical heavenward generosity. He gave to the work of the ministry in India. They prayed earnestly for him as he suffered for the sake of the lost. They mobilized the church in England to support, pray, and bring about awareness of the work taking place thousands of miles away. So for Carrie to advance the gospel, Fuller worked to raise the money for him to go. He was going to send all that he could from his own pocket and then call the church to aid in sending funds and praying diligently for Carrie to be on mission. Now talk about being zealous for good works. These men hungered to do the will of God because of the work God had done in their lives. And they desired God's name to be magnified throughout the whole earth. So good works for Andrew Fuller looked like radical generosity. But why does all of this matter? Well, because those who have the knowledge of the truth, the glory of the gospel, should be those who are on mission and devoted to good works. Namely, we should be growing in generosity. Not stagnant, but ever increasing. We're to hold the ropes like Andrew Fuller. So giving knowledgeably, sacrificially, and specifically for the good of the church and the exaltation of Christ throughout all of Connecticut, New England, and the ends of the earth. So, so this morning, we're going to spend our time in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul instructs Christians to fight the good fight of faith by fleeing the temptation to store up wealth for earthly gain and be radically generous for the good of the church and for the fame of Christ's name. And so with that said, open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And as you turn there, it's helpful to know that 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are companion letters that were written just around the same time as one another, 62 to 64 AD, with common thoughts and purposes. And so what we've heard from the book of Titus over the course of the last few uh, weeks should echo in our ears as we open up 1 Timothy today. And so there are three points that I want us to see from the text. Number one, the fight of faith. Two, the fight for generosity. And three, our call to be generous. So follow along as I read 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 11. It 
It says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from the reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now to understand Paul's call to fight for generosity in chapter 6, we need to grab a hold of the context to this fight of faith. And so to begin, there's a fight of faith because there's a fight against falsehood. In fact, just like in Titus, false teaching crept into the church. Just listen to chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So in 1 Timothy, Paul calls Christians to pursue a gospel-shaped life in the face of those who contradict the truth of the gospel, which is exactly what we see in the purpose statement in chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Paul says there that I am writing these things to you, to Timothy, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So stemming from verses 14 and 15 comes what it looks like to behave in the household of God. The false teachers, they live like the devil. But those who trust in Christ pursue godliness not for their own gain, but as chapter 4, 8 says, because it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Which brings us to Paul's instruction in chapter 6, B, the summary of the fight of faith. Because Paul instructs Timothy in two specific ways. Number one, to flee ungodly living. And two, to pursue godly living. So first, flee ungodly living. Notice what Paul says to Timothy in verse 11 of chapter 6. He says, flee these things. But what things? Well, Paul's referring to all that he's instructed Timothy about false teachers in chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. Just look back at verse 3 with me. It says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. 
notice, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So Timothy is to run away from the pursuit of the world and the false teachers who seek to destroy the people of God. But he doesn't just tell Timothy to run from ungodliness, but commands Christians to be, pursue godly living. Look at verse 11 with me. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made the good, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. All this language echoes what Paul wrote in chapter 4, verse 7. Train yourself for godliness. So Paul uses military language here to stress the fact that godly living is rigorous. It's a fight. It demands active, ongoing, never-ending engagement. So there's a daily fight of faith, an active taking hold of eternal life. And we're told that godly living has been exemplified for us. Look at verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul charges Timothy to keep the commandment regarding pure doctrine and godly living, testifying of the truth no matter the opposition until Christ returns. And what's his great example in keeping the commandment? It's clearly Jesus, who remained courageous, steadfast, and immovable before Pilate. So what's Paul's reaction to his charge to keep the commandment until Jesus returns? It's doxology, a declaration of exaltation. Verse 15 says, He, God, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. How sweet are these things. What a doxology to recount the nature and person that is God. God is blessed. He's altogether the happy one. He rules and he reigns over all things. He's the true king and Lord over every other Lord who has walked the earth. He alone is immortal. He will never die. Completely indestructible. He himself dwells, he resides in perfect, unadulterated, and unapproachable light. Purity. He's never been seen. And he cannot be seen because he is spirit. He alone is worthy to receive honor and glory and eternal dominion over all forever and ever. So Paul showcases who God is 
right? Being reminded of the return of Christ draws him to praise, exalting the glory of God. He declares, this is the king whom you serve, which should just overwhelm us this morning, shouldn't it? If you look at the doxology and say, those are nice things, that's not an appropriate response. This is God. He's worthy to be praised. And he draws his people to live radically different from the world. Paul instructs Timothy to be radically different from the false teachers. And so on the heels of Paul's doxology comes a shift in his focus to the wealthy. So for the rich in, in the church, there's a fight for generosity. And Paul instructs the wealthy with the need to A, hope in our generous God, B, a call to generosity, and then shows C, the result of generosity. So A, hope in our generous God. Look at verse 17 with me. Paul writes, as for the rich in this present age, charge them, charge the rich, not to be haughty or arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides you with everything to enjoy. Now in the first century, there would have been a small percentage of the church who were wealthy, but if we step back to think about who this applies to, we all here in proclamation... In this building right now, we all fall into this camp because we are statistically the richest people in the world. Just listen to this. If you earn $25,000 a year, you're wealthier than 91% of the world's population. If you earn $50,000 a year, you're wealthier than 98% of the world's population. I even rounded down. It was like 982 and there's nothing wrong with that unless you're arrogant and you set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches rather than on God. That's Paul's point here. He's making a clear distinction from the ungodly in Ephesus. Just look back at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So in verse 17, Paul tells us that the wealthy shouldn't be arrogant about the things they have or set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Now at the time of this letter, money was a topic that could easily cause dissension. How shocking is that? The rich could become arrogant about what they had and look down upon those who did not have much. So the wealthy shouldn't be arrogant for the good of the church, nor should they set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. So the church is not to place hope in something that can't possibly bring hope because riches are uncertain things. One commentator, William Mounts, helpfully reminds us of two reasons that riches are not a proper foundation for the Christian's hope. Number one, because riches are fleeting. And number two, because riches are of the present age, the here and now. And yet so many try. So many try to cling to the riches as long as they possibly can. Just think of King Tut, the famous Egyptian pharaoh. Right, He put all his hopes in the uncertainty of riches, which was useless. Why? 
because you can't take riches with you. But he most certainly tried, didn't he? Do you know what he smuggled into his tomb? (laughs) Just listen to this list. Four board games, just in case he got bored. A life-size mannequin to help him pick out what he would wear. Hundreds of garments, including 12 robes, dozens of gold sandals, underwear, socks, even his own baby clothes. How about this? His golden throne, six chariots, two trumpets, pieces of art, jars, a bed, a diadem, and a partridge, and a pear tree. My goodness, King Tut is the perfect example of placing hope in earthly riches. He tried quite literally to take it all with him. And he will never, ever enjoy it. Because you can't take it with you. So where does the Christian place their hope? They place their hope not in stuff that won't last. Oh, but in God, verse 19, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see what Paul's doing here. The contrast couldn't be greater. Don't hope in the uncertainty of riches, but hope in the one who is certain. Hope in God who is happy and blessed and eternal forever. Look at verse 17. It is God who richly provides us, his people, with everything to enjoy. I mean, this frees us from thinking wrongly about the things of earth, doesn't it? If we recognize that God's the one who provides us with everything, surely we can't possibly be arrogant when it comes to our money, can we? No, God richly, fully provides his people with all things. All we have comes from his benevolent hand. But that's not all. According to the text, God lavishes us not only with everything we need, but with everything to enjoy. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that the good things God provides are for our greatest joy. So we should thank God for the good things we have. Food is necessary. Clothing, very helpful. Cars, beneficial. Coffee, I would argue, essential. All that he richly supplies is meant truly for us to enjoy. Which is what King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. It says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You catch the repeated theme? God gives to his people. And therefore, God's people Rejoice, but let's be clear this morning. Our joy is not to be found in gifts, but in the giver of every gift. You know, my wife Candace makes the most delicious banana bread on the planet. She makes it, she bakes it at the proper temperature. 
And when she takes it out of the oven, the entire room fills with the sweet aroma of bananas. The top is dark brown, inside speckled with yellow. And then she showers the top of this bread with confectionery sugar. And you sit there, and as you bite through the crust, you're filled with warmth and sweet goodness. Now, if I were to sit down and eat a plateful of this bread, and then look down at the bread and say, Oh, delicious bread, thank you. You are the apple of my eye. I love you. You'd think I'm nuts. <laughs> and then you'd say that my affections were placed in the wrong direction. I should thank the master baker, not the bread. So the things of earth that God graciously blesses us with should draw us to bless our king. Author and pastor Joe Rigney says it like this. God's gifts become avenues for enjoying him. We don't set God and his gifts in opposition to each other as though they're rivals. Instead, we enjoy God in everything and everything in God. You see, fools hope in the uncertainty of riches. But Christians hope in God, who is certain, the one who is true, the one who is good, the one who is abundantly generous in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this passage calls us to ask some pretty hard questions. Do you possess your possessions? Or do your possessions possess you? Who is it that provides for you? Is it you? Or is it God? Do you rightfully recognize that God gives you all things to enjoy? And do you in return delight yourself in God. We must be those who turn and praise not to things of earth, but to the one who gives all things generously. Christians are exhorted to hope in their generous God. And those who hope in God pursue the call to generosity. Verse 18, Paul says, they, meaning the wealthy, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So three specific commands given in verse 18 for those who hope in God. Number one, the rich are to do good. Two, the rich are to be rich in good works. And three, the rich are to pursue willful generosity. So the first, to do good, which means to do good things with your time, your talents, and your treasures for the benefit of others. But don't just do good, but also be rich in good works. Now catch the play on words here. Look back at verse 17. Right? Paul said, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides. Do you hear it? The foolishness of riches is compared to God who richly provides for his people. And now Paul has pressed them. He's pressing the wealthy to be rich in good works. So Paul commands wealthy Christians to mirror the very nature of God. To abound in doing good in the church. 
So make the connection. God, who richly gives us everything, provides us the opportunity to richly give to the people of the church and the mission of the church. And then the final command in verse 18, to be generous and ready to share. These two specific phrases here aren't two different commands. They're two sides of the same coin. So Paul's saying that the wealthy are to be willfully generous. They give their money for the sake of others, namely those who are impoverished both physically and spiritually. It's the idea of a joyful giver of all they have for the good of the church and for the glory of God. It's the same type of language that we heard that we've heard in Ephesians chapter 4:28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, for what purpose? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Or Titus chapter 3, 13 and 14, we heard it last week. Do your best to do what? To speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way, see that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So to be willingly generous, willfully generous, is to be like Christmas morning Ebenezer Scrooge. Scrooge was overwhelmed to such an extent that he was willingly generous, wholeheartedly and joyfully giving what he had for the good of others. His hands were not clenched, his pockets were not sewn shut. No, he was ready to share all he had with others and eager to do good in any way he could for the weak, the poor, and the weary. And shouldn't that be the case with us? To be those who mirror the generosity of God by doing good to all, being rich, abounding in good works, and generously giving all we have for the gospel to go forth and for the saints to be supplied with all they need to live? But let's press it down a bit deeper. What does it look like for us to be those who are generous? I think it looks like giving systematically, sacrificially, and specifically to the local church. So giving your first fruits and prioritizing God over comfort and entertainment, which means you're walking by faith and not by sight. You're giving sacrificially, letting go of good things to be generous to the most important things, the work of God in in the hearts and lives of his people, laboring together with your brothers and sisters in Christ for the glory of God. So believers are called to be generous, to do good, rich in good works, with willful generosity. But then Paul shifts from the commands to the results. So see, result of our generosity. Look at verse 19. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Look how Paul begins. Thus. Now this word doesn't indicate the reason for them being generous, but shows the result of being generous. So by doing good, being rich in good works, and being willfully generous, demonstrates that you are those who are actively storing up treasures as a good foundation for the future. But what does that mean? 
Well, storing up treasure for, the, for themselves certainly points us back to Jesus' teaching from Luke chapter 12, verses 33 and 34, right? Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Right, so storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future isn't like placing investments in the stock market during the Great Depression, a place to put your money that was most certainly uncertain and doomed to be wasted. No, that's not us. We are called to store up and invest our riches in the age to come, placing deposits into the reality of what will be rather than what will never, ever be. But we need to be very careful here because the text isn't speaking of earning our salvation by giving generously. No, Paul's combating the wicked orientation of the false teachers regarding money. Remember in verses 3 through 10, the unbelieving wanted riches for the good of themselves, which becomes a snare to them leading to destruction. But not those for, for those who are trusting in Christ and storing up treasures in heaven. This is how the wealthy are actually called to orient their eyes, hearts, and their resources in a God-honoring manner. So it's clear that there's a way to use your money that forfeits eternal life. Not because eternal life can be bought, but because your use of your money shows where your true treasure is found. So how we use our money tells us what rules our hearts. We want to be those who graciously and willingly give, knowing that it is storing up good foundation for the hope that is to come. And what's the purpose of storing up treasures in heaven? Look at the end of verse 19. So that they, the rich, may take hold of that which is truly life. So the same language we saw in verse 12, taking hold of eternal life, grab a hold, cling to eternal life, is used here in verse 19 to encourage the wealthy to take hold of that which is truly life. What is the real life? Eternal life. Which means that those who give generously are those who have the hope of eternal life right now. Those who generously give are those who will most certainly enjoy the king in the age to come. Why? Because it displays where your hope is found. So Paul's giving us a framework to fuel our giving. We don't give out of guilt. We don't give because mom, dad, grandma, or even your pastor tell you to. No, the beauty of God's generosity toward us and the hope of what truly lies ahead should compel us, motivate us, and inspire us to see all our treasures as opportunities to be overwhelmingly generous in the here and now. Seeing all our treasures as provisions from God to the people of God for the glory of God. Don't miss it. We are called to heavenward generosity. Now be clear. God isn't looking for dispassionate, disingenuous philanthropists. He isn't looking for those who give gifts because they saw Oprah pay it forward one time on TV. 
You know, God calls his disciples to be so filled with a vision of heaven and a zeal for eternal life that they would be compelled to invest their money, their time, and their prayers where they will matter most, the kingdom of God. Now, this is a radical orientation to your resources and might be quite challenging for some of us. You may even be trying to make excuses for why you shouldn't be generous with your time, talents, and treasures. If you're quick to hoard and slow to give, give of yourself and your possessions for the good of the church and for the glory of God, then I want to encourage you to examine your heart this morning. Because as we've seen, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If your hope is in riches and not in God, you aren't any different from those in verse 9 who desire to be rich and fall into temptation, into snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's as clear as day that if that's the case, then I want to plead with you to trust in Christ. The one who came to live a perfect life, who died a substitutionary death and then rose from the dead on the third day that you might be freed from sin, death, and the devil. Right? The greatest display of generosity is found in the generous giving of the Son of God for the rescue of sinners. Those who are then lavished generously with the great hope of life everlasting. So I appeal to you to turn from your sin, to pray that God would save you, and then you'd live for the glory of God with a heavenward generosity. Now, I wholeheartedly believe that Paul's instruction to the rich speaks directly to our situation today. As I mentioned earlier, we have the great privilege of staring down a similar mind that William Carey and Andrew Fuller looked down. Because at proclamation, we're going to have the glorious privilege in the near future to be senders. We have the privilege of holding the ropes for our brothers and sisters who will send to make Christ known in Manchester. Which means there's a call for us to be generous. So I want to challenge us to A... Be those who give knowledgeably, and B, give willingly. So first, give knowledgeably. Right? Paul charges us to be a generous people. But when we give, we must give knowledgeably. We must be those who remember who it is that has given us all that we have. And do not forget the great hope that lies ahead. That's the foundation of Paul's instruction for Christians here in chapter 6. We are to pursue heavenward generosity. Giving of our time, our talents, and our treasures. All that we are, all that we have in view of the imperishable hope of future glory. Christ is returning. We're not taking any of our riches with us. But we can most certainly store up our treasures for the age to come. So let's be those who give, knowing who it is that lavishes us with everything to enjoy with the great hope of heaven. Right? Know who it is. Remember the doxology from chapter 6. Know who it is, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who has, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and glory forever. It is him who gives us all things. But now what does it look like to be those 
who give knowledgeably. What does it look like for us then to give willingly to the work of the ministry right here at Proclamation? So that the gospel might be proclaimed, the Halberts might be sent out to plant a church, and that this church would be financially strong to continue to plant churches throughout Connecticut for for the sake of Christ's name by God's grace. Well, in fact, verse 18 here gives us a framework for what good works look like regarding our money. We are those who are to give willingly and joyfully and sacrificially. Everything we have, money, time, talents, everything for the sake of God and his church. So how would you evaluate your willingness to give? Right, willingness does not necessarily equate to large gifts. No, it looks like being open-handed, ready and prepared to use all that God has given you to make him known throughout the world, including here in Connecticut. And as you know, willingness requires action. So write down a list of ways that you'd like to grow in giving of your time, your treasures, and your talents for the kingdom of God. Begin praying as a family about the opportunities God affords you to be a blessing to the church and to the mission. And ask yourself difficult questions. Is it your bent to be willfully generous? To be joyfully generous? To be sacrificially generous? And how could you excel still more in each of these ways? Do you view all that you have as a resource to be given for the good of the church and for the glory of God? Are we willing and ready to hold the rope for our brothers and sisters who are going to Manchester for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel? Just think about it. Right As we look to send out the Halberts with others from our congregation, we have the great opportunity to be those who give our time, talents, and treasures to that new church and to be zealous to pursue heavenward generosity so that many gospel lights would be lit all across the state of Connecticut. But that takes time. That takes talent. That takes certainly treasures. As we read this morning, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Oh, I so desire for your treasures to be rightly oriented. Not because we want your money, (laughs) but because we want your heart to delight in God and his church. I want you to store your treasures in heaven. I want your willingness to give, to be consistent with all that you have been given because it so clearly displays what you love. Those who love Jesus are willing to forsake all for the sake of making much of him. Brothers and sisters, I want us to be zealous for good works. I want us to be zealous for heavenward generosity. May God give us the grace to be a people who set their hope on God who graciously gives us all things to enjoy and be a people who knowledgeably and willingly give all we have and all we are for the praise of his name among the nations. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious reminder from your word that Christians are called to be those who hope in God that we store our treasures, not in the here and now, but storing them 
for the future age to come. Father, we do pray that we'd be those who are zealous to do good, to be rich in good works, to give generously, to be willfully generous for the glory of God and for the good of the church. Lord, we do ask for your grace in this matter. We do pray that we would not use our money as a way of trying to buy your affection. Lord, we know that your affection on us is a result of your affection on the son who purchased us. So Lord, we do pray that we'd be so overwhelmed by who you are and the glory of the gospel and that we'd be zealous for then to be devoted to good works like generosity until you return. And it's in Christ's precious name that we pray these things. Amen.